All right, if you have a Bible, open up to the book or the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3. Mark chapter 3. Haman, the guy we were just talking about, failed at his plans. But I guarantee he didn't wake up that day thinking, you know, it's a beautiful day. I'm going to fail. Probably not, right? Have you ever met anybody that said, I want to go out and fail today? No. No hand was raised, and that's right. Because you've never met anybody like that. Now, have you ever met anybody who said, today I am going to succeed? You ever met anybody like that? This is a raise your hand. Have you ever looked in the mirror, brushing your teeth, and say, I am going to do good today? Have you ever done that? Okay, I'm seeing hands nodding. All right, I'll take that as, as the same thing. How do you succeed at what you want to do? You know, it's the big game today. All of those coaches and players and support staff, they're coming in with a plan to succeed. Both of those teams are saying, we're going to win. There is, I guarantee it, there is no player that is taking the field today that is like, well, I think we're going to lose today. I think we've got a good plan to, to fail, right? Nobody's doing that. But it's funny to me how many people approach their life almost as if they want to fail. If I want to go and, uh, you know, my brother, uh, he's moving and he, he moved yesterday. They loaded up the truck from Nashville, Tennessee. And this week they are moving from Nashville, Tennessee to Medford, Oregon. My brother's moving to Oregon. He just picked the spot that's like not anywhere near where I live in Oregon. But I guarantee my brother at some point sat down and said, do I have a map? What's the route we're going to take? Do I have gas money? Am I ready? You know, all of the things you need to do to have a successful move. And yet we approach life. It's like, well, do you, do you want to be a stronger Christian? Sure. Do you, are you tired of failing? Yes. How are you going to stop failing or how are you going to grow in your faith? How are you going to find a way to have success as a Christian? I don't know. I think I'll just, hopefully it all works out. How are we successful Christians? And you might've noticed, I know I'm very creative, but the title on the sermon notes is successful Christianity. Mark's gospel, chapter three, Jesus has been ministering in the northern part of, Egypt, uh, of Israel, called the region of the Galilee. And it says in chapter 3, verse 7, Jesus has been in these towns, and it says now he re- withdrew with his disciples to the lake. And a large crowd from Galilee followed. And when they heard about all that he was doing, many people came from Judea, Jerusalem, Idunium, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon, because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many, so there were uh, those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. And whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell any others about him. 
So Jesus has been in the cities he now withdraws out to an open space so that these crowds can be accommodated. The first thing that I notice about successful Christianity is that successful Christians, successful Christians follow Jesus' example. If you want to if, if be a Christ follower, then doing what Christ did seems like a good idea, right? The first thing that I notice about Jesus is that he is pragmatic without compromise. Pragmatic. Pragmatic or pragmatism is just dealing with the realities of the situation. If you had plans for a picnic, it's summer, it's, it's going to be a beautiful day, and you have plans for a picnic, and then all of a sudden the weather changes and it is pouring rain. You're not going to go out. You're going to stay in, right? You're going to audible. You're going to go to a different plan. That's pragmatism. It's just dealing with the reality of where we're at. I think there are a lot of Christians who live in a sort of an unreality. If only it could go back to some previous age. If only it was like it was in the 80s. If only it was like it was in the 50s. If only it was like it was in the 1750s. If only it was like it was at some previous time. But that's not when God has called us to serve him. You know, I, I hear people say, oh, this is the worst time the church has ever experienced. I don't think that that's true. But whether it's true or not, I know that whether it's good or bad, these are the days that God has called us to serve him in. And 2020 is when Jesus has us working on his mission. And Jesus is pragmatic. As we've been studying the gospel... Jesus, his tendency was to go into a town, into a village, and meet with people in small groups, one-on-one. -on -one, and then he would heal somebody, do some sort of ministry in someone's life. And he would say, don't tell anyone. And then they did. And then all of a sudden, the crowds get so big that he can't even enter the city. So Jesus is pragmatic. He said, well, look, if the crowds are so big that I can't enter the city, then I'm going to go out to the big open spaces, and that's where we can fit that many people, then that's what we're going to do. And then it gets to the point where so many people are, when it says that it's crowding him, I'm not a Greek scholar, but the guys who are that I've read say that this is sort of a threatening, a menacing word, crowding, pushing, storming. There's a reason why if you go to certain sporting events or certain concerts, there's security, there's sort of a fence that has a space between the stage and the crowd. It's so that people at the very front aren't crushed by the people in the back. So Jesus gets himself in a boat on the lake, the Sea of Galilee, and he lets the people sort of sit up on the shore so nobody can try to crowd him. He's, he's out a little ways, not because he's separating himself from the people, but for public safety, crowd control. I said this a couple weeks ago, but I still believe this is true. Sometimes you'll hear about a church somewhere doing something and you'll go, what, did they, what are they doing? But we have no idea of the realities that they're dealing with. You know, maybe they have a situation where they can't get a, a, a space big enough in their city, and so they have to do like three services, and they have to get people in and out, and you go, it's just like a machine. I don't like that. Well, we don't have to deal with that reality. 
And then maybe they hear about something we're doing and they go, why are they doing that over at Faith on Hill? Because they don't have to deal with our reality. We're just living in the reality. Like we aren't in a um, strip mall or we aren't in an urban setting. We're in a neighborhood. So there's a reality to some of the things about being a church that's in a neighborhood um, that is different than being a church that's out kind of in an industrial area where noise ordinances and things aren't an issue, right? We have to just deal with certain things. I appreciate that pragmatism. As a church, we can say, you know what? This is just the reality we're in. And we're going to not complain or whine or wish we were in some different time or place. This is the place God's put us. At the same time, Jesus doesn't compromise. There's massive crowds. We know that he feeds the 5,000 and then later the 4,000. We know that there are multiple thousands of people coming to see Jesus, and yet nowhere does he compromise the message of the kingdom of heaven. Nowhere does he change his stance. Some people want to bring children to him. This is a real famous story. You know, some people want to bring children to Jesus, and his disciples are like, nope, give him space, give him room. He says, no, bring him to me. Because he's, he's not trying to change anything about who he is or what his message is. He's just dealing with the practical realities. We can't compromise. Can't compromise. We can't compromise. And yet at the same time, we can be aware of the world we're in. And we can say, hey, you know what? That might have been true 20 years ago. It might have been the thing to do 50 years ago. But it's not the thing to do today. So we can be practical about how do we do the work that God has called us to do. And at the same time, we can't compromise. I remember hearing that there were people being critical of Rick Warren. He's a real well-known author and pastor. Because their church had a humanitarian ministry. And they were working in impoverished countries. And some of those countries were Muslim countries. And so they were putting some restrictions on the type of work they were doing there. And people said, oh, he's compromising. Well, if you want to serve the people in a Muslim country, you're going to have to work with the Muslims and do some, you know, follow some of the, the rules of that area, right? There's no compromise there. That's just being pragmatic and practical. On the flip side, there's no compromising the gospel. So if, if somebody said, hey, um, you, can, you can be a church here, but we aren't going to let you tell people that they have sin. You aren't we aren't going to let you tell people that Jesus is the only way to heaven. Say, no, thank you. We're sticking to that. That's, that is our belief that we have such great need of salvation and the only hope for this world is through Jesus. We're not compromising that. We're not compromising the truth, the word of God. But we can also be, be practical about some things, right? The second thing that I note is that Jesus made use of the opportunity. These crowds were coming, and they were coming not because of who Jesus is or the, the message of his gospel, his good news. They were coming to see a show. We hear there's this guy that does miracles, and we want to see that. Or, I want Jesus to fix this problem. Maybe they had a bum leg. Maybe they had a, a reoccurring illness, a chronic illness. They didn't want Jesus. They wanted their problem fixed. 
But Jesus made use of the opportunity. I have said this before. I will say this again. If you come to church for this church, any church, if you come to church for any reason other than Jesus Christ, you will be disappointed. I can promise you that. And we know from the Gospels, as you continue to read, that eventually the crowd abandons Jesus because the show, the miracles, just weren't enough for them. And they left disappointed. But while you have the opportunity, what do you do with that opportunity? I recognize one of our biggest events of the year is our summer carnival in August, right? And I recognize why people come to the summer carnival. It's the bouncy houses. That's why they come. If you thought they were coming to see your smiley face at the cakewalk, I have news for you. They like the cake, but they're there for the bouncy houses. Now, we were pragmatic this last summer because it dumped rain, right? Like it was the one day it dumped rain. So this room was full of bouncy houses instead of the field. But they weren't here for the us or the cakewalk. They were here for the bouncy houses. We get that. What do we do with the opportunity while they are here? The conversations that we can get into. The words that we can say. What do we do with that opportunity? Something I was personally convicted of. I was at a birthday party. Uh, I am at the phase as a dad where I'm going to a lot of kids' birthday parties. And last year I was at a birthday party. And somebody asked me what our church was like. And afterwards I felt convinced and convicted that I had been sort of vanilla in my answer. I'm not saying that I needed to turn to him and say, repent. You know, it really matters when a preacher puts his hand out, shakes it a little. That really. But maybe I could have been a little more direct. I had an opportunity. What do I do with it? And I think that's something that's a good thing for us to think about. We have the egg hunt around Easter. We have the the water day in the summer. We have carnival in the summer. We have opportunities. What do we do with that opportunity? They're not here for us, and they're probably not here for Jesus, they're, but they're here. That's the, the, the next thing I notice. If you want to be a successful follower of Jesus, he's pragmatic without compromise. He makes use of the opportunities. And then in verse 9 and 10, it says uh, people with diseases we're pushing forward to touch him. There are people that are afflicted with impure spirits and they saw him and they fell down. There was all kinds of need happening. And Jesus was provoked to action. If you're filling in your notes, Jesus was provoked to action. And there is all kinds of need in our world. There are people that are, are broken physically because of, of sin substance abuse, uh, life choices. They're just broken physically. There are people who are broken emotionally because of sin. Maybe their own sin. Maybe it's the sin of somebody else inflicted on them. They're victims. People that are broken relationally. They've lost track of how many people they've been with. Was I married to that person or... No, I didn't have to go to the court to get it. It's been so, so many relationships you don't even know. My grandma was like that. And we can be provoked 
And sometimes, sadly, the church has been provoked to judgment. I can't believe you're such a screw-up. Or we can be provoked to action and say, how can we serve you? And through serving you, we serve God. How can we be provoked to action? How can we be provoked to love? Because there are people that need what we've experienced. A couple months ago, I sat in a meeting at the main central office for the North Clackamas School District. And I know we've got a lot of employees of the North Clackamas School District in this room. So I sat in a meeting with all of your big head honchos, and they were telling us how much they want us involved. And the backpack buddies stuff on the table, they want that. And I chuckled to myself as I sat there because in a room directly above the room we were in, six months earlier, I had been in another meeting with the same head honchos where they basically said, we don't want your input. Well, which is it? I'm going to be honest. We can look at our world and we can say there are extremely concerning things, things that as people who believe that the word of God is true, who believe the gospel of Jesus, who believe that there is a madness that is brought upon by sin in our culture, there are some things when you hear about going on with the government, with the schools, with wherever, and you go, oh, that is disturbing. And I can be provoked to anger. I can be provoked to judgment. I can be provoked to isolation. Oh, really? You don't want to hear from us? Well, we're going to take our backpack buddies and go home, mister. Or we can be provoked to love and action. Because remember, this same crowd that is going to abandon Jesus, Jesus is out working among, serving, loving. You want to be a successful Christian, you want to follow Jesus' example, you have to be pragmatic without compromise, make the most of your opportunities, and when you're provoked, we have to make the choice to be provoked to love and action instead of resentment or judgment. And I love that Jesus just destroys the status quo because for these people, being afflicted by impure spirits, being put under the bondage of sin was just normal for them. And Jesus comes in and starts breaking people free. People need to be broke free in our day. And we are the people that Jesus has called to be his people, his hands and feet on this earth. And if we want to be successful at following Jesus, part of that success is knowing that we don't have to do it all on our own. The burden is not all on my shoulders or not all just on your shoulders. Successful Christians empower other people. Look at verse 13. It says, Jesus went up to the mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. So there's a contrast. Jesus has been down at the lake, and now he's going up. Jesus has been doing the work himself. And now he's calling people to him. And verse 14, it says that he appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the 12 he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name Boandries, which means sons of thunder. 
Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So there's a contrast. Jesus and now these 12. He didn't do it all himself. This is a weird thought because Jesus is God, but Jesus couldn't do it all himself. Have you ever heard the question, can God make a rock so big that he can't lift it? I'm just going to let you, spoiler alert, yes. But that's not what people really want to know when they ask that question. The question really is about, is there a limit to what God can do? And I think sometimes people think, oh, I'll show those Christians. Their God can't do everything. Well, no, Christianity has always said that there is a limit to what God can do. God doesn't change. God doesn't lie. God cannot sin. There are things God cannot do. And there are things that God has, by his own choice, limited himself even further. He gave people free will. We have to make a choice with how we live our lives, what we believe, what we do, what we say. And he has limited himself. He will not violate our free will choice. There are the things God can't do. Yes. And when God became a man and lived among us, Jesus was limited by human limitations. He was in a physical body. He couldn't be every place at once. He was in a physical body. It had to eat and sleep. There were limits to what Jesus could do. So what did he do? He empowered others so that they could do the work. Here he appoints 12. They were already with him. And he, out of those people that were with him, he appoints 12 to preach and to minister. Later on in Luke's gospel, we find out that he sends um, 70 out. After he appoints the 12, then he appoints 70 more people to go out and preach and minister. It's not just these special people, the 12. He, he appoints more and more people. He empowers others. Discipleship is the process of learning how to be a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus. I learned how to follow Jesus through other believers who had already walked that road before me. I have a really strong conviction about this. I believe that sometimes Christians in the church think that discipleship is a simple process. You come to our eight-week course, and at the end of the eight-week course, we get out our big stamp and we go, boom, discipled. Here's a piece of paper to prove it. At the end of that eight-week course, you might know some things, but does that mean that you are a disciple of Jesus? Not necessarily. In fact, this last week, I had to look back on the transcript of my undergrad stuff. And it wasn't that I had forgotten things from certain classes 20 years ago. I'd forgotten the class existed. Oh, I took that class. I didn't do too bad in that class. That was pretty good. Oh, I didn't do so good in that class. Just because you took a course or a class or somebody gave you a certificate, does that mean that you're a disciple? Or does discipleship happen more organically as we spend time together, 
working together, working alongside of each other. I have learned more by, by doing and by being than by hearing, if that makes sense. I, I believe that one of our biggest ways that we make disciples here at this church is through the small groups. But it's not because the uh, sermon questions that I write, and if you're, you're like, why are there questions at the bottom? Those are for our small groups. I don't believe that those are so life-changing that every week that you go through those, you're just never going to be the same. But as I am with other brothers and sisters, as I'm praying with other brothers and sisters, as I'm hearing about life and we're talking about these things and I see how they respond. And then as we live life together, I've learned more, far more. Before I got married, Every so often there'd be a sermon or something about marriage or raising kids. And I'd go, well, I'm not married. I don't have kids, but maybe this will come in handy someday. So I'll take some notes. Or did I learn more? And I believe I learned more from being around godly husbands and wives who modeled for me, showed me what it was for a husband to love his wife, what it was for a dad to be a dad. Jesus empowered others. He took people that he had spent time with and then gave them a shot. They were empowered to preach and to minister. You know, empowering others means you got to take a risk. And if you're writing in your notes, write this down. Empowering others means you have to take a risk. Have I ever empowered someone else for ministry and then it's just blown up in my face? Oh, yes. Many times. And it'll happen again someday, I'm sure. Sometimes you have to take what I would call like a godly or a gospel risk on somebody. That I, I'm not sure, there's some rough edges, but you know what? I think God might have something going on in this person's life. And I'm going to give him a shot. And yes, there's going to still be a lot of work needed because it's not just eight weeks, boom, you're stamped a disciple. It's a process. But I really believe this. I am a failure as a Christian man. And I'm certainly a failure as a pastor if I'm not empowering others to serve God. Because that's the model that Jesus gave us. He took what he did and he passed it on to others. And those people passed it on to others. And they've been passing it on ever since until we get to right here, right now. The first Christians in Jerusalem, are our legacy. And we are theirs. If you want to be successful in your Christian faith, you got to follow Jesus' example. And you got to empower others. Well, who can I empower? I can empower my wife. I can empower my kids. I can empower the people I work with. I can empower whoever God's given you. Who's God put in your life to pour into? To say, hey, you, I believe in you. I believe in what God's doing in your life. Successful Christianity is not about just building me up, but it's about building up the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is not just about me or you. It's about way more than that. It's about way more people than just us. And when he called the 12, they stepped up. 
Successful Christians step up when called. Now, calling is an interesting thing. The word calling means a strong impulse towards a specific action or vocation, and calling is uniquely personal. I do not feel that I am less spiritual because I don't have someone else's calling. I don't think you're more spiritual if you have a calling that I don't have. Calling is a unique thing. There are people that are called to leave their home, their country, go somewhere totally foreign for 50 years and serve Jesus there. And they're not more spiritual because they went there than you are for staying here if God said, no, I want you to stay here. Calling is a unique thing. The question is, when God calls us to something, do we respond? Not everybody is supposed to go to Mexico with us. At the, at the end of June, this last week of June, this summer, we're taking a team to Rosarito, Mexico, to work among uh, some orphanages and to do some gospel outreach. We're going to be promoting it here in the next couple months. It's going to be about $225 plus some incidentals. Not everyone's called to go. And the people that go aren't more holy or more spiritual because they do. But if God calls you to go, then you better go. And if God isn't calling you to go, then you better not. The question is, what do you do when called upon to serve him? And are you already there? The disciples were already there serving Jesus, listening to Jesus' teaching. They had a boat ready. There were already people that were doing the work of ministry. Now they have a specific and unique calling. If somebody says, I want to go be a missionary to a foreign country, but they've never told anybody in Milwaukee, Okra of Gladstone, if they've never told anybody about Jesus here, I question whether they're supposed to be a missionary there. If, if we aren't taking care of our universal responsibilities here, I question whether we have a calling somewhere else. The disciples, the 12, they were already serving God just like everybody. Everybody is called to serve God. And then within that universal responsibilities or callings, there's specific, unique callings. God speaks to his children. God speaks to his children. God speaks to you through his word, through prayer, through preaching, through conversation and fellowship with other Christians. God speaks all the time to me. He speaks all the time to you. The question is, are we listening? God speaks to his children. Are we listening? God's speaking to us all the time. I think that there is a, an element where we say, I want to be successful in my life. I want to be successful in my Christianity. I want to be successful, and yet I'm not listening to God. I want to have some unique calling, and yet I'm not doing the basic thing that everybody's called to do. If somebody came and said, hey, we want to do some real specific special thing. Hey, I want to do a, a, a VBS for the kids. Well, if you're not serving in our kids' church, I'd probably go, uh, I don't know about that. Successful Christians follow Jesus' example. Part of that example is that we empower others, and part of that is, example is that when God calls us to something, we step up to the task. 
Now, how do we know if we're successful? I think the last thing is successful Christians measure things by God's standards instead of humanity's standards. People might have said, oh, Jesus was very successful at this point. He had large crowds. All of those crowds abandoned him. Jesus was very successful. He was casting out demons and healing people. But then they might have looked at him on the cross, beaten and broken and bloodied and dying, and they said, oh, that's, that's not his high point. But that was his highest point. When Jesus was obedient to the Father and he went to the cross and he didn't just endure the physical pain, but he took all of the sin and shame and guilt that my sin had deserved and that your sin deserved. That is the highest point of Jesus' success in that obedience. We're successful if God calls you to preach to a thousand people and you preach only to 500 you're not as successful to the person that God says, I have three people for you to, to tell about Jesus, and you tell all three of those people everything that God has given you to tell them. You're batting 100% then. You're more successful. We're successful by God's standards, not the world's standards. I don't think we're a successful church if we hit a certain attendance number. I don't think we're a, certain, a successful church if we hit a certain giving number. The question is, are we successful by doing what God's called us to do? Whatever unique callings God has given us as a church, are we responding and stepping up when called? However many people God has called us to empower, are we empowering them? And in any ways that Jesus gives us his example, are we following it? The band's going to come up. And we respond because we believe that God speaks. This morning, we're going to take communion. And, you know, there's a lot of history and baggage when it comes to the taking of communion. I believe this, that when Christians eat the bread, which represents Jesus' body broken for us, when Christians drink the cup, which represents Jesus' blood that was shed for the removal of our sins, that we identify with him. The Bible says that we proclaim his death to the world. And I believe that there is a moment of openness where God can and will work in our hearts in a special way. And I believe that God's speaking. And maybe God's been speaking to you in a unique way this morning. And this is a moment of faith to say, yes, Lord, I want to obey you. Maybe God's been speaking to you this morning that you, you're not Jesus's. You, you don't have forgiveness of your sin. You don't have hope beyond this world, but you want it. Jesus wants to give it to you. Maybe you know that you have hope beyond this world, but in this world, in this world, you don't have a lot of hope right now, and you need the power of God to change your life. I know I'm saved. I know I'm forgiven, but I need the power of God. We are going to respond, and we respond in three ways. We respond through prayer. We respond through worship, and we respond through giving. We're going to sing a song. We're going to take an offering. While we sing this song, I just invite you to consider what is God's been speaking to me and how can I respond? And then when we're done with the song, then we'll take communion together. But let's have a pause here in our time together of reflection and of worship. 
or sing a song that says, oh, come to the altar, and we don't have an altar, and it's an old word, but it, it, it's the idea of coming to a place of surrender. Let's come together before the Lord this morning.